if you look at Western academies, universities, who are the people teaching the Jewish history, Jewish scholars? Who are the people teaching European history? Mostly Christians and seculars. Who is teaching the Islamic history? Who is teaching the Islamic history is the question. It is the Jewish scholars, Christian scholars, atheistic scholars, or in some cases outright, you know, uh, people who have no beliefs or anything like that. People who have no beliefs at all, they have nothing to defend. Even they are teaching the Muslim history. But when it comes to the English language in the Western world, very few Muslims are involved in the history of study, unfortunately. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome back to the realest podcast in the dunya, the Three Muslims Podcast. Today we're joined with another very special guest, the man himself, mashallah, Adnan Rashid. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you so much for having me. Habibi, again, the pleasure is all ours, alhamdulillah. So for those who don't know you, why don't you give a, a quick brief about yourself, your journey in Islam and some of your work? Okay, bismillah rahman rahim I'm Adnan Rashid and I live in London with my family. I'm a student of history. Uh, I also collect historic um, objects like coins and manuscripts and books. So one of my passions in life is to preserve our heritage. And I spend much of my time and uh, finances on that. So that's one of my passions. In fact, some, some would say it's an obsession. Uh, some people in my family, my wife, my kids, all of them, they see me busy with uh, history and historic objects. So that's my passion. And I've been involved in Dawah for the last, uh, I would say, the best part of 15 years. And I've been studying on and off. I'm a student. I'm a broken student of Islam. I'm not a consistent student. So there is always a break in the middle, sometimes longer <laughs> than uh, the previous breaks. But alhamdulillah, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a dynamic journey. I'm enjoying every single minute of it. As long as, um, as long as we are on the right path, I believe, even if we are slow in making progress, as long as we are on the right path, inshallah, we'll get there one day. So this is a summary. I studied history at the University of London. My bachelor's was in history. My master's was also in history. And, I am, and now I'm uh, planning to pursue a PhD, inshallah, when Allah wills, um, in history also. So that's the plan, inshallah. Inshallah. May Allah grant you success in that. Allahumma ameen. 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 So uh, anyone who knows Speaker Corner has watched Speaker's Corner debates and all of that for the past, I'd say, decade or so, would definitely recognize your face, inshallah. You have been very active in the Dawah scene, also your debates with, uh, for example, James White and other people. Honestly, to, in my personal opinion, I love them so much. I, I think they were amazing. So Jazakallah khair for all of that, alhamdulillah. Um, and you also wrote a book, you know, speaking about history, you wrote a book talking about basically the Islamic contributions and how Islam was one of the best things that happened to mankind. The book's titled Islam's War on Terror, a historical consideration. So 
let's go into that a little bit, inshallah, because a lot of people, one, they don't value history. We had Dr. Steph Karras on. We talked a little bit about why history is important. So check that video out as well, inshallah, to all the viewers. Um, but people don't understand why, you know, history is important. Islamic history, Muslim history, and Islamic contributions to the West, because there's this narrative nowadays that Islam is, you know, just a religion of terror and that we have no societal contributions and we're just barbaric and Sharia law, X, Y, Z. So what's this difference, this alternative narrative, the true narrative of what really happened? Look, history is very important because uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses it. For Muslims, it is more important than possibly any other uh, group uh, in the world. Why? Because our scripture, what we call Allah's word, the Quran, it consists of history. In fact, I would say nearly 30% of the Quran is history. History in our eyes, because we believe what Allah is describing, what Allah is explaining is history. Okay, because it, it is Allah who is sending it down. Uh, to secular historians, it is not necessarily history. These are legends. These are myths to some of them. They think Adam never existed. Abraham never existed. Some of, so there are people like that who think like that. And uh, because they are secular in their outlook, they are naturalists. Uh, they don't see any physical evidence of uh, Abraham's existence or, for that matter, for Adam's existence. They think they never existed because there's no physical empirical evidence. But we believe in the metaphysical world. We believe in the supernatural. We believe Allah is the one who revealed the Quran. We believe Allah exists and he's the one who spoke with us through his prophets and he sent down revelations. Therefore, whatever he tells us is true. It is by default the truth so that's why the quran tells us the stories of previous prophets and some of their struggles with their respective authorities at the time for example abraham uh, dealing with his king joseph dealing with his king moses uh, confronting the pharaoh or the pharaohic uh, uh, um, establishment so all of these things are there in the quran so it is absolutely crucial for us to know our history allah is teaching us the importance of history in the Quran by telling us these stories. Okay, on top of that, history is very important for us to know, uh, for us to uh, uh, better understand the present and to be able to predict the future or to possibly make our future better, having learned from the past. So, if you know the past well, you will take lessons from your past, you will learn from it, and by doing so, you will be uh, living your present uh, to the best of your abilities and at the, at the same time you'll be making things better for the future inshallah having learned lessons from your past that's another reason to know history also furthermore history is important because your enemies are using it against you your enemies islamophobes islam hating entities around the world uh, in some cases governments are using your history against you they are distorting your history, they are spinning it, they're putting the wrong spin on it, and they are throwing it back at you, right? And because we are not trained in history, we don't know our history, we're not able to defend our civilization, right? So in order to be proud of your history, in order to be, uh, in order to be, uh, how can I put it, you know, in, in order to be very, very aware of your history, uh, you have to study it. And doing so will give you the ability to defend your civilization where there are virtues where there are achievements where there are luminaries 
to defend, you will defend them effectively because you know the history. But if you don't know your history, your enemies will throw partial history at you or distorted form of your history at you or lies, outright lies at you and you won't be able to defend because you are, you are simply not aware whether this is even your history or not. So it's happening in India today. It's happening in the West. Islamophobia is a reality. We don't even hide it anymore. You know, there are, there are people on, on news channels, politicians, uh, pseudo-intellectuals, pseudo-historians are using your history uh, without having to face much uh, trouble or much uh, challenge from Muslims. So I believe Muslims need to study the history more and more. We have been very negligent in particular towards the history. We have neglected, neglected it criminally. I believe we are criminally negligent towards our history. So it's very important for us to appreciate our history. Uh, learn not all of it. If I mean, it's, it's impossible for one person to know all your history. But you can also focus, always focus on a particular point of your history. You can master it and then you can always represent it. Uh, if you look at other people, our counterparts like the Christians and the Jews, if you look at uh, Western academies, universities, who are the people teaching the Jewish history? Um, Jewish scholars. They are teaching Jewish history. Who are, who are the people teaching, uh, let's say, European history? Mostly Christians and seculars. Secular scholars, some of them are not even Christian. Um, who is teaching the Islamic history? Who is teaching the Islamic history is the question. It is the Jewish scholars. Christian scholars, atheistic scholars, or in some cases outright, you know, uh, people who have no beliefs or anything like that. Um, I mean, even atheism is a belief, in my opinion. Okay, <laughs> it's a belief system. We can go into that if you want. But uh, but people who have no beliefs at all, they have nothing to defend. Even they are teaching the Muslim history. So the only people missing from the scene are, unfortunately, Muslim professors, Muslim scholars, uh, who are uh, who are absent from. Uh, schools of history or history departments in major universities in the West in particular. Okay, you may find one in, one or two historians in the Muslim world uh, teaching in the local languages like the Arabic language, let's say in the Arab world, Urdu language in Pakistan and the Hindi language in India. I mean, most historians in India write in the English language, but there are people who are teaching in the local languages. But when it comes to the English language in the Western world, very few Muslims are involved in the history of study, unfortunately. Yeah, subhanAllah. You know, it's, well, it's amazing you mention it because um, even myself, uh, when I learned about certain points just, you know, maybe a few hundred years ago, it's not even necessarily Islamic history, but it was a huge turning point. Like, for example, World War I, the end of it, my teacher was telling me that we wear these poppies in Canada. We go around like so proudly wearing them and they distribute them in stores and schools and uh, they talk about this like great enemy that, that you know, the West fought in World War One, and the longest time, for so long, like maybe 19 years, I didn't know they were talking about the Muslims. I didn't know they were talking about the Ottomans. And that's when the Ottoman Empire fell. That's like when the Islamic leadership fell and then everything changed. And these are things that they don't, they don't teach you. They don't talk about. They'll talk about the Canadian side, the Western side, the European side. But and, and they'll they'll talk a lot about World War Two, which uh, they should obviously it's a very you know important part of our recent history, but they don't talk about Islamic you know contributions to the West. They don't talk about maths and sciences and law 
and how you know Europe even translated some of our literature and then took some of our laws and so on and so forth. And uh, obviously, you know, if anything I say is incorrect, you know, jump in and then correct me, please. But this is just what I know so far. Listen, th there is one side. Uh, let's say you, you mentioned the First World War. There's one side the, the, that the, the Ottomans were one of the parties in the war and the uh, coalition, a coalition fought the Ottomans and Ottomans were also uh, part of a coalition. Uh, uh, the Germans and the Ottomans were one party let's say, and Britain, France, and uh, America were another party, right? Uh, so uh, you see what you have to understand is th this is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that even from the Western side, even from the, le let's say, from the British side, there were hundreds of thousands of Muslims who gave their lives, right, uh, to, to fight for the freedom of the British Empire, okay, or to fight for, uh, let's say, the, the honor and the dignity of the British Empire. Rightly or wrongly is another question altogether. Were they right in doing, doing this is a separate question. The point I'm making here is there were hundreds of thousands of Muslims who gave their lives for the British Empire in the First World War. Okay, 1.4 million people died. Soldiers, I'm not talking about the, the masses. Uh, when we talk about the casualties uh, of war during the First World War, they run into hundreds of millions. Okay, collectively, uh, two world wars killed 200, 250 million people. Collectively, both wars killed 250 million people. These were the bloodiest conflicts in the history of humanity to date. All the wars put together previously uh, did not kill as many people as were killed during these two world wars, the First World War and the Second World War. So all the conflicts put together uh, previously in the recorded history of humanity for the last 2,000 years, let's say, right? Uh, we don't have so many people dying, okay? People can argue, oh, the weapons were different and there, was, uh, there were less people on, uh, on the planet. That's why there were less casualties. Fine, but point still stands, right? That most people, uh, thus far up to that that point up to the point of the second world war most people were killed by these two wars in human history okay and then afterwards many more conflicts took place in the 20th century 20th century was the bloodiest century of uh, human history but that's another point it's a separate point but but coming back to the first world war there were hundreds of thousands of indian muslims and Sikhs and Hindus, of course, also, um, in lesser numbers, they joined the, the conflict and they gave their lives. And there is physical evidence of that, by the way, right? There are names upon names. There are lists upon lists. There is a French scholar, I forgot his name, who has produced a lot of work on the history of Muslim soldiers in the British Army during the First World War. Okay? So, uh, they gave their lives for the British Empire. So those Islamophobes who are always talking about Muslims living in the West as parasites, we are here and we are taking the jobs away and we don't belong to the Western civilization. Uh, we are outsiders, we are foreigners, we are immigrants, and we bring our extremism and our barbaric and misogynistic ways with us. All these things we hear very often on 
the mainstream media and uh, in the mouths of some bigoted politicians, right? We hear this rhetoric all the time. But what we need to reverse, uh, uh, I mean, when we, when we, what, what we need to do is we need to turn the tables and ask them that what you call the Western civilization, okay, in its current form, do you know how many Muslims gave their lives to protect it, to preserve it, to keep it alive? Do you have any idea as bad or as good as it may be? We're not discussing that point, how good or how bad it is. How it is today and whatever remains of the Western civilization, do you have any idea as to how many Muslims actually gave their blood to keep this tree alive? Okay, hundreds of thousands during the First World War. Plaques were given to Muslim soldiers who died in the war. There were, there, there, there were copper plaques um, given to Muslim families in India with the name of the deceased soldier. And uh, around the rim, it was written, he died for our honor and um, he died for our honor, something like our honor and uh, I forgot the details. Mm, yeah, something like that. But the word honor is there. I can quickly look at one of the plaques. Okay, so these copper plaques were given to the families of the deceased. Okay, 1.4 million of them were manufactured. What does that show you? 1.4 million soldiers died in the First World War, okay, and hundreds of thousands of them were Muslims, okay. This is one side of the coin. The other side is the Ottoman side, as you mentioned rightly. Ottomans were part of a coalition with the Germans, and in fact, there were cases where some Muslim soldiers even refused to fight uh, against the Ottomans or even refused to fight in this war. Uh, there was a massacre of some Muslim soldiers in Singapore. It's, it's a, it's a well-known massacre uh, where Muslim soldiers refused to fight. They said, we're not going to fight against our Muslim brothers, the Ottomans. So they were put against the wall and shot dead by the British military. Yes, absolutely. They were executed, right? There's another example where some Pashtun uh, tribal uh, Muslims from current-day Pakistan, they, they went to Iraq to fight on one of the fronts. They refused to fight and they came back. Uh, by land, they came back on on camels. They came back to their territory, current day Pakistan. So there are examples like that as well. Uh, on both sides, you see Muslims sacrificing their lives. Okay, so so this is why knowing the nuances of history is very very important, right? Muslims sacrificed their lives for what we call the Western civilization today, and Muslims also sacrificed their lives for what we call the Ottoman Caliphate uh, in the 1920s, okay? So we have to know these nuances for the reasons I already discussed earlier, that if we know this history, we can properly defend our civilization, our contributions to other civilizations for that matter, okay? So whatever remains of the Western civilization, Muslims have given their blood and sweat to make, make it what it is today. Okay, and this doesn't start or end with the First World War. Okay, the beginning is very, very early. Muslims were there from the very start, beginning with Britain or even Europe, if we talk about Muslim contribution to European intellectual development. Okay, uh, even later on, to this day, Muslims are contributing 
to the Western civilization. So Muslims have always had a very powerful, positive presence within uh, the cultural and historic landscape of the Western civilization. Okay, this has to be remembered, right? Of course, there are periods of conflicts. We have crusades, we have colonialism, we have uh, other unpleasant experiences with the Western civilization, but that's not, that's not the only experience we've had. We've had many positive interactions, many positive contributions made towards the Western civilization. So we have to be clear on these things, inshallah. Inshallah. I want to give the brothers a chance to jump in here because I've been kind of stealing the, uh, the seat this whole time. Bro, I've just been listening, man. There's a lot to unpack and a lot to learn. Mashallah. Yeah. Yeah. Jazakallah here for all the information. I have a question, though. Mm -hmm. For someone who gets overwhelmed very easily, what would you advise them to, like, start? Like, where would you advise them to get started with learning history? Okay. I, I always advise youngsters to start with reading one particular book, and it is titled um, The Lost Islamic History. Okay. The Lost Islamic History by Firas al Khatib. It, it is an excellent introduction to the Muslim civilization. Okay. Any beginner who has no knowledge of how the Muslim civilization began and what it became, uh, you must read this book, inshallah, titled. Uh, the lost Islamic history, okay, uh, reclaiming Islamic civilization from the past, something like that, and it is an absolutely amazing book. Uh, it is a good introduction. It is not detailed. Uh, beware of the fact that it is not detailed. It is a simple introduction to the Muslim civilization. For advanced studies, you will have to read advanced books. And what I'm looking for is to inspire Muslim youngsters out there who are listening to this program to go out and get degrees, get masters and PhDs in history uh, of your civilization and pick a particular topic, let's say, okay, a specific topic and start studying it and master it, okay? You won't become a master of all the history of Islam. That's not, that's not very possible uh, with one lifetime, uh, but you can potentially choose one topic and become a specialist in that. And then you can always represent that particular topic when there is a history, uh, when there's a discussion on history. Like, let's say you can, you can study the history of the Ottoman Empire. And even within the Ottoman Empire, you can study the history of Suleiman, you know, Suleiman the Magnificent, one of the sultans. Or you can study the history of, let's say, Sultan Muhammad al-Fatih. Okay? Or you can study the cultural or, uh, or maybe one of the literary aspects of what the Ottomans left behind okay then you can look at india you can look at al-andalus spain you can look at baghdad you can look at abbasid baghdad for example you can look at ayubid egypt or ayubid syria okay you can talk about crusades muslim experience with the crusades you can and the list goes on and on and on and there is so much to study there is so much to know that it's unbelievable and how we have been negligent is also fascinating it's unbelievable Nowadays, we, when, you, when you speak to Muslim families and Muslim youngsters, you ask them a question. What would you like to become? Or what will you study at uni? They will say, I will study accounts. I will study medicine. I will study law. I will study business. And all of these subjects, if you ask them, why do you want to study this? They will say, because I want to have a career. I want to make money. 
So the primary purpose now of education is to make money, which is which is not which is not right. This is not the right way of looking at education. One of the benefits can be money. One of the benefits can be a career. One of the benefits of your education can be, uh, you know, a good financial prospect. But the primary purpose of education is to enlighten you, to make you a better person, to make you uh, a better citizen of the world, to make you a thinker, to make you uh, someone who proposes solutions, who gives solutions rather than contributing to problems. So uh, we have lost, unfortunately, we have lost the purpose of education. So speaking to Muslims in particular and the rest of humanity in general, okay, we need we need diversity in education. We need more Muslims in particular getting involved in humanities and history, specifically history, so that we can actually do all of this. So start with that book, inshallah. You will get a very good introduction from um, the lost Islamic history. Okay, by Firas al Khatib. It's a very good introduction to Muslim history. And then once you have finished that book, uh, there are so many different topics you can pick on or pick from throughout the Muslim history. It's dynamic. Our history is great. It's magnificent. It is so magnificent. I mean, I, I simply don't have words to explain how, how magnificent and how inspirational Muslim history is. Um, putting aside all the unfortunate events and occurrences, there is a lot of positive contribution Muslims have made to human history that needs to be appreciated and understood. Inshallah. Alhamdulillah. So this being said, what would your golden, I guess, topic of specialty be? I, I'm, I'm fascinated by a number of topics. I, I, looking at my background, I, I'm heavily involved in um, interfaith dialogues and debates with Christians mostly. And then also sometimes the Jewish scholars. So I study early Christian history for that reason, for that purpose. I study the history of Christian scriptures, for example. And that really fascinates me. And it helps me in my debates and dialogues and discussions. It's good to be informed uh, on the theology and history of your counterparts for, for you to have a healthy, uh, informed academic discussion. So I really like that history. Also. Uh, one of my one of my favorite topics throughout the Muslim history is basically early Islamic expansion. Okay, how did the Sahaba carve out such a huge empire within the the first three generations of Islam? And amazingly, the Prophet of Islam praised these three generations. The Prophet said, "Sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the best of people are from my generation." and then those uh, that come after, and then those that come after. So three generations the Prophet spoke about, and these were the three generations that took land from uh, land between China and Spain. Okay, within, within, within a hundred years, Allah made a prophecy in the Quran. Allah sends down a prophecy in the Quran in chapter 24 of the Quran, verse 55, Surah An-Nur. Okay. Allah states, "A'udhu billahi min ash-shaitanir rajeem." Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Wa'ada Allahu al-ladina amanu minkum wa'amilu salihat la yastakhlifannahum fil ard kama stakhlafa al-ladina min qablihim. It is a promise of Allah to those who believe among you and do righteous deeds that Allah will grant you succession in the land. So this was a prophecy made by Allah in the Quran when the Muslims were cornered from all sides. Muslims were facing 
ex existential threats. Muslims were militarily cornered. They were very weak. And Allah reveals this verse to empower them that don't worry, not only that you will overcome all of these challenges you are facing today, you will also take the land. You will overpower the land physically, temporally, not spiritually speaking. Physically, you will take the land. And then the Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, also in many reports, he prophesied that Muslims, my followers, will defeat not only the Arabs, they will defeat the Persians and the Romans. Okay? So those who were listening to the Prophet at the time, they were thinking, hold on a second. Are we, are we hearing this right? Are we hearing this right? Is this what the Prophet is saying, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that we will defeat the Arabs? And not only that, we will defeat the Persians and the Romans. Okay? This was incredible, to use polite terms, right? This was absolutely, I mean, this was crazy. This was mad for some people to hear this. But they believed it because they knew the Prophet ﷺ is a true prophet of Allah. He's a true prophet of Allah and he cannot possibly lie. And you know when the Prophet said this, one of the places he said this was the Battle of Ditch. When Muslims were surrounded by a coalition of armies from all sides and Muslims were digging a ditch for their, for their, for their, for their defense for defending the city of Medina. And the Prophet, he, while digging the ditch with them and breaking a rock for them, right, three sparks emerged and the Prophet ﷺ, at each spark, when the spark emerged, the Prophet said, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And the Sahaba, they were shocked. And the rock was shattered, of course. And the Prophet ﷺ said, the first spark signifies a victory over the Arabs. The second spark signifies a victory over the Persians. And the third, a victory over the Romans. And what's happening? They are digging a ditch to protect themselves uh, from the Arabs. And they don't even know if they're going, they're, they're going to survive. But Allah's Messenger is telling them this. And what happens? The Prophet ﷺ died in the year 11 Hijri, corresponding to 632 CE. 632 CE. And in the year 92 Hijri, the year 92, exactly 81 years later, corresponding to the year 711 CE, Muslim generals were in China, in India, and in Spain. Okay? So Qutayba bin Muslim was in China, on the borders of China, and Muhammad bin Qasim was in current-day Pakistan, the province of Sindh, okay? And Farik bin Ziyad was in Al-Andalus, in Spain. This was, the largest, this was the largest stretch of land ever ruled by one group of people, okay? To date, to date, this was the largest stretch of land ever conquered or ruled by one group of people, historically speaking, with this speed. Greater than what Alexander the Great had done. Muslims took more land than Alexander the Great took from Macedonia to India. Okay, so this was a prophecy fulfilled word by word. In fact, there is another prophecy uh, in Sahih al Bukhari. There's a report. Adi bin Hatim, one of the companions of the Prophet, was walking around with him, and the Prophet told him that 
you know, if you live long enough, Adi, you will see three things, three things happen. One of them is that a woman on her own, she will travel from Hira, which is northern Iraq. She will come on a beast. She will make tawaf around the Kaaba and she will go unmolested. Yani, there will be so much security in the Muslim domain that even a lady on her own would be able to travel, uh, you know, and she won't be harmed in any way. Then the second thing, Adi, will be that there will be so much wealth uh, in the coming times. You will see that there will be so much wealth in your hands that you, I mean, they, no, the people won't, won't be claiming charity from you. Every Muslim will be so rich. And the third prophecy is that you will open the treasures of Kisra. Kisra. So Adi was shocked when he heard this, naturally. Adi said, Ya Rasulullah, are you talking about Kisra, the son of Hormuz? Are you talking about the Persian emperor? In case there is some other Kisra you're talking about. So the Prophet said, no, I am talking about Kisra, the son of Hormuz. That is the Kisra. You will open his treasure. In other words, you will conquer his lands and you will occupy his treasure. And this is exactly what occurred soon after in the time of Amr bin Khattab. Why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this to, uh, for you to understand that Muslim history is very dynamic. And Muslims carved this empire within no time. Within, 50, within 70 to 80 years, Muslims had taken all this land. The question is, what happened afterwards? What happened afterwards? And this is what I discuss in my book, you know, Islam's War and Terror. It's a working title, by the way. Uh, it is not an established title. The book is still being worked on. I'm still working on... Uh, uh, I'm very slow, unfortunately. I'm very busy in other things. So it's taking me a while to come out with the second edition. The first edition was just a very quick draft I put out for public to take information from. And I, I will be working on a second edition, inshallah, so that it's more detailed and it makes more sense, inshallah. So. Inshallah, alhamdulillah. So forgive me for my ignorance, but I'm under the impression that your son, Musa Adnan, he's also studying history, right? Correct, yes. So... There's there's two ways to look at it. Usually when this when this happens, usually the son follows in the footsteps of the father from his own accord, or the, the father had a big role and influence to play. So which one was it for your relationship with your son? Okay, uh, in my son's case, it was purely his choice. He studied, uh, he knew I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a student of history, and he has seen my library. Uh, he knows my passion for historical objects. So he knew all that from since childhood. But when he grew up, he read uh, a couple of books on history and he realized this is what he wants to do. He wants to, he wants to study history. So he took history uh, on his own accord, right? But then with my daughters, for example, one of my daughters is studying psychology. Even though I advised her to study history, she said, I want to study psychology. I said, by all means, please do so. I didn't force her to study history because she liked psychology more she went into psychology my uh, 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 the, the other daughter she is doing english she's uh, doing a degree in english in the english language so i didn't force my kids to study uh, history uh, i i wanted them to choose uh, something uh, within humanities i mean i preferred humanities because every single muslim parent you look at i mean predominantly speaking yeah they want their kids to study something like a career oriented um, kind of field like where you make money like medicine law business accountancy even if they don't like it and it shouldn't be like that 
Our kids have to love what they study. They have to choose it for themselves. And that's when they will excel. That's when they will excel. That, that's when they will become masters of these fields instead of being forced by a particular mindset into studying a particular subject which they don't like, you know? MashaAllah. Mm. Yeah, yeah SubhanAllah. That's, uh, it's, it's very unfortunate that a lot of, a lot of parents, because I, I find it to be the case that a lot of parents it doesn't just happen when it comes to university because that's when you really try and like specialize, you major in something. It happens from the get-go where the Islamic knowledge is really minimal or even Islamic history and, and or I would say any field that uh, is super important in, in regards to it not being super, you know, or, orientalist kind of lifestyle is, is disregarded even from a young age. So it's not just something that happens at university. It's all throughout life and we go throughout our entire lives and I'm talking about myself here. You know, I went through my, throughout my entire life not knowing um, all of these really astonishing things, subhanAllah. So with that being said, you, you mentioned and obviously you wrote about as well Muslim and Islamic contributions uh, to the world and to the West uh, more specifically, you know, in the case we've been talking about recently. So what would you say are some of the other, like, I would say highlights of Islamic contributions or things that people have misconceptions about or don't know about and would most likely be surprised to hear? People don't have any conceptions, unfortunately. You know, you, you can only have misconceptions when there is something to conceive, okay? There, 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 are, there are no conceptions, unfortunately. In, in most cases, people haven't studied uh, the history of Islam. So all they know is, unfortunately, very negative. Uh, the newspapers have done a brilliant job in tarnishing Islam and the Muslim civilization and Muslims in general, right? Uh, for the last 20 years, Muslims have been on the receiving end of an, uh, an Islamophobic onslaught or xenophobia or even racism in certain places in the Western world. And this is happening because we are actually not, uh, you know, we're not, we're not very active in doing da'wah. We're not teaching people about our civilization. We don't show them the living side of our civilization. So for that reason, we really need to start talking about how Islam has contributed so much to the Western civilization. It's not that we want uh, a trophy, we want medals, or we want, uh, let's say, um, uh, you know, the Western civilization to pay us back in some sense. No, it's to acknowledge, it's to get them, get our Western counterparts or people living in the West, get them to acknowledge that Islam, far from being an enemy to the Western civilization, is a friendly force, it is a positive force, it has always, our scholars, our kings, our, our dynasties have always tried their best, in most cases, to contribute positively, right? When there was a conflict, it was either imposed on Muslims or it was caused by some kind of misunderstanding, right? Like, for example, look at Crusades. Crusades went on for nearly 200 years. For nearly 200 years, I mean, if we were to look at cl Crusades, classically speaking, Crusades went on from uh, 1099 to 1291. Okay, 1099 CE, when the Crusaders turned up at the, at the gates of Jerusalem and they massacred the entire population. And uh, then they ruled for 90 years, almost 90 years, until Sultan Salahuddin Ayyubi took back the land of Palestine from the Crusaders, and then 
uh, Crusaders remained in the Holy Land for another hundred years until the Mamluks, Sultan, Sultan Baybars, uh, had uh, taken the last, the last stronghold of the Crusaders in uh, the land of Palestine. Okay, so for two hundred years, a conflict was imposed upon Muslims that they didn't want to take part in. Muslim, Muslims didn't want any part of the Crusades. They didn't want to fight uh, these Western uh, adventurers who had come from France, Germany, and Britain, right? This war was imposed on Muslims. Likewise, colonialism, okay, what happened during the, 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 the colonial period throughout the Muslim lands, those wars, those conflicts were actually imposed on the Muslims by European colonial enterprises. Other than that, if you look at Muslim history with the West, it has been very positive. Muslim works were being studied in places like Britain, France, and I'm talking about 800 years ago. I'm talking about when uh, Europe was in the Dark Ages. Okay, when they say the Dark Ages, although a lot of historians now contend that term altogether, okay. Uh, but there was a period of decline, civilizational decline in Europe. Okay, after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, uh, your, Europe went into a sharp decline. Okay, uh, literacy rates declined. Okay, um, people's uh, uh, you know exp life expect uh, life expectancy declined. There were many conflicts. There were many disturb disturbances. That's why that period is called the Dark Age. Okay, for nearly 500 years. From the year 500 to 10, uh, uh, 1000. Okay. From the year 500 to 1000. In this period, however, there was something very special going on in Western Europe, and that was in Al Andalus, Spain. For some reason, Western historians, when they talk about the history of Europe, they don't even consider those 700 years, 700 years of the Muslim contribution in Spain. They treat it separately, they treat it as alien history. They don't treat it as the history of Europe, strictly speaking. Okay, so if you will read a book on history of Spain, okay, uh, there will be a small chapter on the Muslim period, okay, and the rest of it will be talking about uh, Catholic kings from Castile, from Aragon, and from other Spanish uh, principalities. Okay, likewise, there's hardly anything on the Muslim. Uh, contribution when it talks about, uh, you know, when, when uh, Western historians write. To this day, when Western historians write histories of science, they either write very briefly on the Muslim contribution or they ignore it completely. Okay, this is a big problem. And a lot happened in those seven centuries in Spain. Muslims ruled Spain or parts of Spain for almost 700 years. From 711 to 1492. This is the chronology. 711 to 1492, Muslims ruled parts of Spain and for 300 years, most of Spain. For 300 years, most of Spain during the Umayyad period. This was a period of the Golden Age. Many scholarly works were produced in the Arabic language in Cordoba, in the city of Cordoba, and Toledo, and Seville, and Valencia and later on in Granada, right? A lot of these works were transferred to European lands, such as France and Britain in particular, where these works were translated into Latin 
from Arabic and then these Latin translations made from the Arabic works caused a revolution, an educational revolution in Europe, which later on basically, uh, uh, you know, accumulated, okay, or, or maybe resulted in what uh, was known as the European Renaissance, uh, which started in the 15th century, 1400s. A lot of the European Renaissance in some areas came from the Muslim contribution. There is a book I strongly recommend by a man called George Saliba. George Saliba has written a book titled uh, uh, The Islamic Origins of the European Renaissance or The Arabic Origins of the European Renaissance, a very important book that discusses the Muslim and the Arab contribution to the science of astronomy. By the way, not many people know that the University of Oxford was started on uh, the basis or on the ba on 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 the, it was built upon muslim manuscripts or arabic manuscripts that were that were brought from the muslim world okay uh, the first science taught at the university of oxford was the science of astronomy and books mostly came from spain al-andalus okay then even philosophy that was taught in the Western world came through the Arabs. Okay, Ibn Rushd, who is a very famous scholar from Spain, also known as Averroes in Europe. Okay, his commentaries on Aristotle were studied in Europe by scholars like Thomas Aquinas. Okay, major European philosophers during the Middle Ages were studying Muslim works from Spain. From Sicily. By the way, Muslims ruled Sicily for nearly 200 years as well, just over 200 years. The island of Sicily in Italy, now today we know Sicily for what? Brothers, help me out. What do we know Sicily for today? I'm not talking about olives and <laughs> and uh, and pizza. What What are the Sicilians known for in the US, let's say? I genuinely have no idea. Okay, have you heard of Sicilian mafias? I was about to say that. I was about to say the mafia. <laughs> okay, have you have you have you have you see have you have you watched this movie, uh, The Godfather, mm -hmm. series? Right. It, it it's the movie is about Sicilian mafia. So what is Sicily Sicily known for today? Italian mafias, Sic Sicilian mafias, right, right. But Muslims ruled Sicily for over two hundred years. And some of the major Muslim scholars are born in Sicily. Some of their works are studied to this day. Al-Idrisi. Al-Idrisi was a famous cartographer. Cartographers were basically people who made maps, who were geographers. They studied geography, and based upon the study of geography, they made maps. One of the most famous medieval maps of the world is made by Al-Idrisi. Al-Idrisi was later on active even in the Norman, Norman court when Normans had taken Sicily from the Muslims. So Muslims ruled Sicily for nearly 200 years and many works produced in Sicily in the Arabic language ended up in Europe through Latin translations. Spain produced some of the best scholars in human history. Okay, Those 700 years gave some of the best poets, scholars, uh, scientists for that matter. You know, surgical instruments were invented in Spain. And these surgical instruments were used for 
nearly 1,000 years, as late as the 19th century, the surgical instruments of Abul Qasim al-Dahrawi that were invented in Spain were used up to the 19th century, as late as the 19th century. And only in the 20th century, these instruments were basically updated. New instruments were invented because, of course, uh, we moved on quite a lot with science. For example, uh, other scholars who were born in Spain, Ibn Hazm, a great theologian, right? He was also born in Spain. One of the best Jewish scholars, one of the best Jewish scholars in Jewish history was born in Spain, in Cordoba. His name was Musa bin Maimun, also known as Maimonides. Maimonides, who is known as the second Moses in Jewish history, one of the greatest rabbis who ever lived in Jewish history, was born in Muslim Spain, in Cordoba. Later on, he took refuge with uh, the Ayyubids in Egypt because he was persecuted by a new power that arose in Spain called the Almohads. Almohads were, were a bit extreme and they started to persecute some minorities. And for that reason, some of the Jewish families took refuge in other Muslim lands like Egypt. Right. So this history between the West and the Muslim world or the Muslim civilization is very, very dynamic. It's absolutely fascinating. And one book in particular I would strongly recommend on this topic is Hidden Debt to uh, Islamic Civilization. I repeat, The Hidden Debt to Islamic Civilization by S.E. Al-Jazairi. By S.E. Al-Jazairi. This is a very powerful encyclopedia of information. It is not necessarily written for academic uh, fraternity, but it is uh, good for information. If you want information, factual information on Muslim contribution to the Western civilization in particular and Muslim civilization in general, it is an excellent piece of work. Information packed. It is an encyclopedia of fascinating facts on the Muslim civilization. Okay. And there are other books I can recommend, but I think this, this would be a good start, inshallah. Inshallah. SubhanAllah. It's, 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 it's really, well, it's so motivating and so inspiring hearing about, you know, Islamic history. And even when I told just a little bit um, to my little siblings, I saw this look on their face, this, this joy and this excitement that, SubhanAllah, a lot of people think history is boring. Honestly, a lot of people think history is boring, but well, it's, it's honestly, I don't know anything much of it, to be honest, but it's very, very exciting just sitting here and listening, uh, subhanAllah. So, jazakallah khair. Um, what, what, what I told you today is not mm -hmm. even tip of the iceberg. It's not yeah. even scratching the surface, as they say, you know. Uh, yeah. Once you get deeper and study Muslim Sicily, Muslim Spain, the Ottomans, the Mughals in India, the Ayyubids in Egypt, uh, and uh, let's say, uh, you know, other dynasties of uh, Islam, uh, the Delhi Sultanate in India, okay, how Muslims protected India from destruction uh, during the Mongol invasions. For 100 years, Muslim sultans stood like an iron wall in the way of the Mongols, uh, and India, India was protected. India was saved from Mongols, right? Because Mongols devastated every single land they went to, right? And Muslim sultans, they gave their lives, their property, their children to protect India, to defend India. Okay, I was talking earlier about this. Uh, so the, the history of Islam from India to Spain, uh, from China to Spain, is, is absolutely fascinating, mind-blowing. You know, Muslim art, 
on monuments, Muslim monuments around the world. If you look at them, for example, you will see that some of the most beautiful monuments built in human history were built by Muslims. Al-Hamra Palace is an example. It is an epitome of uh, artistic beauty, right? You look at Al-Hamra Palace, you see geometric uh, patterns on the walls. You see the calligraphy. You see the designs. You know, when the Catholic monarchs defeated the Muslims in 1492, when Granada fell to Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, uh, they, were, they, they wanted to destroy the Muslim legacy in Spain completely. And they burnt one million books. One million books were burnt in 1492 by these Catholic monarchs when they took the city of Granada or the state of Granada for, uh, from Muslims. And when they actually saw Alhambra Palace built by the Nasirid rulers of uh, Granada, they simply could not destroy it. They said, this is far too beautiful for us to destroy. And it stands as a, a, a reminder for the world as to how advanced Muslims had become in the imagination, in the artistic beauty and the expression of love uh, through this art. It's absolutely amazing, you know. And of course, there are other examples in, uh, in, in Ottoman lands where Ottomans ruled. The Mughals left behind monuments like the Taj Mahal and the Red Fort and all the other Mughal monuments that can be found in India and Pakistan. The Badshahi Mosque in Lahore, built by the Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb Alamgir. All of these things, the problem is uh, that our youngsters are not aware of these things. They haven't actually seen these things to appreciate them. They are more interested in just Justin Bieber and, uh, and uh, so-called football stars and music artists and movie stars. And they're playing games, computer games, day and night, all day. Um, and uh, I'm looking at my son, you know, who's looking at me right now. Uh, I'm speaking directly at him, you know. They spend all, all this, this precious time playing computer, computer games. So my, my advice to Muslim youngsters is, at least 10 minutes a day, learn something new about the Muslim civilization. Go on YouTube and type Muslim civilization and you'll be blown away by the documentaries and by some of the facts, inshallah. We just have to reach out, inshallah. Inshallah, inshallah. Brothers, I, I hope I'm not boring you guys because I, I think I, I'm, I'm continuously speaking and you guys, are, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you... If you if you are actually you know, I mean I'm sure you're appreciating the information, but when it when it when it's too much when it's too much it's it's difficult to take all of it in. No, we're we're intrigued. The the thing is usually like, the the amount of understanding and new things that we learn it's not really as high as today. So we're we're more listening than than speaking today. That's probably right. Why yeah. I'm right, right. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. But you know, I mean, you guys are from Canada or from the U.S. Me and Ron are from Canada, and Anho from the States. Okay. Wallahi, even looking at uh, North America, the history of Islam is so fascinating. Uh, from the very beginning of North America, Muslims were there, right? Did you know that there were Moriscos that, uh, who, who traveled with the early Spanish uh, immigrants or settlers who went to uh, North America and Central America? Spanish adventurers and settlers who followed Christopher Columbus uh, and settled in the Americas, they took a group 
uh, called Moriscos with them. Okay, Moriscos were converted Muslims who were forcefully who were forcefully converted to Catholic Catholicism after the Christians took the land of Spain. There was a lot of persecution, and Moriscos were they in, in America? They 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 had settlements, they had colonies. So Muslims were there from the very start. On top of that, a lot of the slaves that were taken from Africa, from West Africa, okay, for almost 400 years, okay, uh, of course, slavery started in 1450s, uh, what we call Atlantic slave trade. Atlantic slave trade, basically, when European powers picked up slaves from Africa and they took them across uh, uh, the, the ocean, uh, across the Atlantic Ocean to the Americas, this was called the Atlantic slave trade. Okay, it lasted for nearly 400 years. The peak of it took millions of people from West African countries to America, and almost 30 to 40 percent of them were Muslims. Okay, I will repeat from you know, uh, from, from the 16th century to the 19th century, millions of slaves who were taken from Africa to the Americas. 30 to 40 percent of them were Muslims. Some of them scholars. Some of them scholars mm -hmm. of Islam. One of them is a very famous man called Job bin Solomon. Job bin Solomon in Arabic, his name was Ayub bin Sulaiman. Okay, and if you Google him, you will see his image with the turban, with the copy of the Quran in his neck. His story is absolutely fascinating, mind blowing. Okay. And there is a book I strongly recommend on this topic alone, a fascinating episode of American history with Islam. Okay, uh, the book is titled The Servants of Allah. It is titled The Servants of Allah. It has been authored by Sylvian E. Dioff. Okay, Sylvian E. Dioff. And get the late, latest edition, not the first edition, because it has been added to. And it is a fascinating account of Muslim slaves who were taken across the Atlantic from Africa to the Americas and how they survived with the Islam, how they were hiding in woods and praying the Salah, how they were repeating uh, the Quran or how they were actually uh, trying to keep the Quran by, by do, doing Maraja, how they were actually writing manuscripts in America when they were slaves in places like Pennsylvania, Maryland and the American South predominantly, right? And uh, um, there was a, another very famous Muslim slave. His name was Omar bin Said. Omar bin Said also uh, was a very famous figure. You need to Google him and see. You will see him. He was, uh, he was born in uh, West Africa in the 18th century. And he died in the 1860s in, uh, in, uh, in the American South. And you see some of his photographs, black and white photographs, Omar bin Said. So this is an also another side of the Muslim history, which is often not uh, appreciated and known to mm -hmm. many people. You see? There was, yeah, I was going to say we had, a, we had a couple of scholars that they told us that, and they were African-American uh, brothers or African-Canadians, and they used to say that, you know, our people used to be Muslim. And I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, you know, a couple of generations back, we were Muslim, exactly what you were talking about. Then they lost Islam after coming here, they were given white names, and then generations after they found Islam, subhanAllah. Absolutely, absolutely, and and the reason why so many Afro-American brothers are coming to Islam is because it's part of the DNA. It's already there in the psyche somewhere. One of the ancestors who was enslaved 
he probably prayed to God that, oh, Allah, make my progeny Muslim. Okay, I cannot keep up with my Islam because they were lashed, they were brutalized, they were branded, they, they were worked to death. And at times, in circumstances like this, if they, if they tried to pray, they were tortured and they were brutalized. There were, there were many, many difficulties they faced. And uh, within a generation, Islam was lost, unfortunately. It, 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 they couldn't keep up with the Islam because of the circumstances. But those who could, they did their best in keeping up with Islam. And when you read the book, uh, Servants of Allah by Sylvian Idiot, it will blow your minds away. It will make you cry at times, seriously, when you look at the struggles of those Muslims in America at that time. And what Muslims are going through today is, is, is comparatively is, 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 is nothing in comparison to what the Muslims had been through previously, you know, from different parts of the world. Yeah, subhanAllah. You know, as soon as you mentioned that, the first thing that came to my mind is like, we're dealing with like nothing, subhanAllah. Absolutely. Like we have it so easy and people like there is the world life feels like people are, are you know starting to forego their deen and they're not even facing any kind of real adversity or struggles subhanallah but um that brother you mentioned ayub uh, Suleiman, i remember seeing a video there's a video posted on instagram about him uh, i believe their video was titled um the uh, the fortunate slave or something like that yes that's right there's a book the fortunate slave yes there's a book on him. Wow, subhanAllah. So yeah, I guess the book was yeah, yeah, published by Oxford University Press, The Fortunate Slave. He was fortunate because he was able to free himself. He was a scholar. Uh, he uh, is, is basically, he, he, was, he was discovered by some scholars in, uh, in Britain. Uh, the, law, the story is very long because he wrote a letter in Arabic to his father to pay ransom for him so that he can be freed. And the letter somehow ended up in London. Some people in London, they read the letter in the Arabic language and they asked who wrote this. They said, a slave wrote this. And they said, this is not a slave. The one who wrote this letter is not a slave. He's a scholar and we want him. We want him to be in London. So they paid for his freedom. His American master freed him. He ended up in London for three years. Nearly three years he stayed in London. He met the royalty. He was a celebrity in London. He was even painted by an accomplished artist. And the painting you see online is that painting. Uh, he has a copy of the Quran in his neck hanging and he's wearing his West African turban, you know, very Islamic in his attire. And he wrote two Qurans from memory. He wrote two copies of the Quran from memory while he was in London. Okay, so fascinating. And this happened in 1730s, 1730s, almost 300 years ago. And he returned home to current day Senegal and he found his wife. Uh, had married someone else because she got a fatwa. He went missing for years, of course, so she had no idea. Usually when people went missing that time, they knew they're not coming back. So she, she had gone up, got a fatwa and she got married to someone else and his father was killed in a conflict with another tribe and he found his world turned upside down when he got back to Africa. Fascinating story of Ayub bin Suleiman. Yeah. Wow, subhanAllah. Yeah, honestly, after this, inshallah, I'm going to do a lot more research on that because well, that, 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 that like five minute summaries is, is motivating in and of itself. And I remember this feeling when I first like just watched that short clip talking about it of just inspiration, Allah. But uh, although this has been amazing, hopefully, inshallah, we can do it again because there is just honestly not enough time in the world. Very unfortunate. But uh, my last question for you, Adnan Rashid, is you said you collect historical you know, artifacts. That's one of your passions, right? Yes. What is your most cherished cherished historical artifact that you own 
Uh, a good question, a very good question. I will try to show you an image of it online so that you can see it. Uh, this is one of my most cherished uh, items for obvious reasons. When you will see it, you will see what I mean by that. Okay. Uh, let me quickly share an image of it with you so that you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, this is one of the earliest Muslim dinars in history. Okay. Uh, when I say Muslim dinar, I mean one of the earliest Muslim uh, coins in history. Can you see it? Mm -hmm. It's very clear, right? Yeah, yeah. MashaAllah. Okay. So how old would that be? This was minted in 78 Hijri. Wow. Okay. Uh, wow. Uh, this is basically the second dinar in the series. The first dinar ever minted by Muslims. Uh, when I say dinar, a properly Islamic dinar with all islamic uh, information on it uh, previously they were minting imitations muslims were minting imitations to, for pra pragmatic reasons they didn't change the 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 currency but in the year 77 hijri abdul malik bin marwan and umayyad caliph he minted the first properly islamic currency and this is the second uh, item in the series uh, because it's from the second year the first year was 77 and by the way that year, if you buy that particular dinar, it is worth minimum $200,000 US dollars. Okay. Wow. Uh, so the only affordable, the only affordable dinar in the series is the next one, which is 78 Hijri. Okay. This one. So if you read it, I will read it for you. You can see Bismillah there. Yeah. You can see Bismillah and then move, move the other way and anti clockwise. Doreba. Dinar fi sana taman Okay, it translates in the name of Allah. This dinar was struck in the year seventy-eight, and oh. it was most. It was most probably it was uh, it was struck in Damascus in Damascus. And in the middle there, in the middle, you see you have Allahu Ahad, Allahu Samad, Lam Yalid, Walam Yulad. Okay, uh, this is uh, the reverse of the dinar. If you want to see the obverse, then I will show you the obverse very quickly as well. Uh, where another verse of the Quran or verse taken for, taken from the Quran is uh, put down, and you can see that as well, inshallah. Uh, this is for all my young Muslim brothers and sisters who may be watching this podcast. Okay, this is the other side. Okay. In the middle it says, La ilaha illallah, wahdahu la sharika lah. Okay. Then when you read anti-clockwise from here, where my finger is, sorry, where my finger is, there, it says, Muhammad Rasulullah, arsalahu bil huda, wa deen al-haq, li yudhhirahu ala deen kulli. Okay. So this is, you can say, the first Islamic dinar in the history of Islam. And it is very close to my heart. It's one of my most precious possessions, you can say, okay, uh, because of its historical significance. I cannot afford uh, the one from the year 77. So the only affordable one was 78. So, so I, recently, I recently acquired it, alhamdulillah. And this is Muslim heritage, you know. And even behind this coin, there's a lot of history. And there's a lot of history. Why did Abdul Malik bin Marwan uh, even come up with the idea? Because previously, what happened was he was using uh, the Byzantine, the Roman 
uh, solidi. Uh, the Roman currency in gold was called solidus, right? He was using those uh, for trading, for taxation, for all, all, the, all the necessities. And then he was advised that we must have our own currency, our own gold minted with Islamic formulas rather than using Byzantine currency with crosses, with the, with the, with the, with the image of the king and all that. So Abdul Malik bin Marwan was the man who minted these coins. Mashallah. I know to end it on, man. I'm I'm really excited that that you showed us this, and I'm even more excited to have you back, inshallah. Inshallah. Yeah. There, is there anything that you would like to ask us, or anything that you would like to tell us before we wrap this up, inshallah? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful, and uh, this is my second podcast for the day. I had, I had another one with a South African uh, TV station earlier, so it, it's it's my pleasure to always talk to my young brothers and sisters out there to uh, to to appreciate our history more to study it more to take more interest become coin collectors i mean i encourage you to become coin collectors collect coins on the muslim civilization okay uh, and it's very easy to do that go on ebay and you will find a lot of things you can start collecting it will really start the process of your interest in muslim history inshallah and then read books on the history of islam pick up an easy book to read start with a basic book and then make your way up slowly and then you will start to see uh, the giants we uh, we stand stand on. We are standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say, you know. So we are literally standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, and uh, you just have to find out. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Habibi, jazakallah for coming on. Yeah, this honestly has been a pleasure and honor. And hopefully, inshallah, we can do it again very, very soon. Inshallah, for, uh, inshallah. My pleasure. Always Habib. welcome. Taib. With that being said... اللهم آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وكنا عذاب النار السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله crazy because y'all know how like impactful it was yeah, Listen, yeah. if you're watching this, it was so, it was such a strong dream that I woke up and then I was talking to my dad and I was crying because of how strong the dream was, how impactful the dream was. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up driving to uh, the mosque. It was like 540 something to do Fajr at the mosque. And I was crying the entire way to the mosque. And subhanAllah, I think it's crazy that 